Good evening and welcome to Rare Book School. I hope either after the lecture or sometime during the week you'll take a look at the exhibition in this room which explains how Rare Book School does its business using some of the collections that we've acquired over the years and now decades for that purpose, generally perverting the most obvious use of this material for our own innocent purposes. This is, I believe, Rare Book School Lecture number 453. So we've been at this for a long while, but not, I think, very much longer than Michael Winship has been giving lectures, either from this podium or from our Columbia platform. It's always a great pleasure to have him speaking at Rare Book School. He speaks tonight on Nathaniel Hawthorne and the Scribbling Women. Michael Winship, University of Texas. Well, thank you for coming. Um, this lecture is really a sort of a coda to a lecture that I gave in this room, I think, in 1998 a lecture that was called Uncle Tom Goes Public. And that was the beginning of a series of lectures that I gave uh, on Uncle Tom. The following year, in 1999, I expanded that lecture considerably and gave it at the American Antiquarian Society as the James Russell Wiggin Lecture in American Book History. And in 1999, I was also approached by a group of scholars that were preparing a conference for June of 2000, a year ago, which was a conference to mark the 150th anniversary of the publication of Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. And they asked me if I would be willing to speak at that conference about the publishing history of The Scarlet Letter. And so I thought that I would do a lecture that sort of ran in parallel with my lecture on Uncle Tom's Cabin. And you will see that in the lecture that I give tonight uh, that it really is a parallel lecture. It's talking not just about the Scarlet Letter, but also about Uncle Tom's Cabin and that infamous phrase of Hawthorne, the scribbling women. Before I start my lecture, I'd just like to indulge myself. It's something that I did in 1998, too. I just wanted to take an informal poll of the audience. Uh, how many of you, I presume all of you have, have read The Scarlet Letter and know The Scarlet Letter? Yes, good. So I guess my theory still stands that uh, The Scarlet Letter is a better known text than Uncle Tom's Cabin, though certainly Uncle Tom's Cabin's uh, sort of familiarity is widespread. It has long since entered our popular culture. People know the characters. They know some of the scenes from it, as, of course, has the Scarlet Letter and uh, the characters of it. You know, Hester Prynne, the main female character who wore the title piece, the Scarlet Letter, or as Hawthorne calls it in the closing words of the novel, describing it in heraldic terms. He writes, on a field sable, the letter A, Ghoul. 
and also, of course, the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale, the guilty party who, in the end, collapses from, I guess, guilt and dies on the scaffold. And, of course, Roger Chillingsworth, the husband, the wronged husband who wrongs himself by being wronged. And, of course, little Pearl, the daughter of the sin. And like so many of Hawthorne's pieces, I mean, I'm afraid, I always feel guilty because this is really a lecture about publishing history and I don't talk very much about the text itself, which is a text that I think is a great American text, one of the greatest, and one that we should read frequently. Uh, but tonight I'm really more going to focus on the publishing history and not on some of the interesting things that Hawthorne says and explores in that text and how those things relate to our own ideas of what it is to be American and to have an American culture or a literary culture. But I do want to start my lecture tonight by reading a quote from Hawthorne. And I have this sneaking suspicion, as I've often said, that this probably is the most famous, well-known quote from Hawthorne, that is. It's not, I have to admit right away, a quote from The Scarlet Letter, nor is it a quote from any of his novels. It's actually a quote from a letter. Besides, America is now wholly given over to a damned mob of scribbling women, and I should have no chance of success while the public taste is occupied with their trash, and should be ashamed of myself if I did succeed. What is the mystery of these innumerable editions of The Lamplighter and other books, neither better nor worse? Worse they could not be, and better they need not be when they sell in the hundred thousand. It may well be that no single passage written by Nathaniel Hawthorne is better known than this, or at least over the past few decades, more widely quoted. An extraordinary possibility, really, especially as the passage comes from the middle of a rather long private letter written to his publisher and friend, William D. Tickner, on the 19th of January, 1855, and first published only in 1910. Nevertheless, this passage has resonated through recent discussions of American literary history, for it raises questions that are key to our understanding of that tradition. What, for example, is the relationship between popular success and literary quality? What role do gender politics play in our assessment of a work? In what ways have the economic factors facing authors and publishers fostered or discouraged authorship in the United States? And how is it exactly that during the 1850s, a decade that came to be dubbed as that of the American Renaissance, Sentimental novels could have enjoyed popular success, while the quote-unquote classics by Hawthorne, Melville, Thoreau, and Whitman did not. Although he could hardly have thought in such terms, clearly Hawthorne was bothered by these issues in 1855 as he pondered in what direction to continue his literary career. And let me, as an aside, sort of paint picture of where Hawthorne was in his career. He had, for many years, made a name for himself as a, store, a 
writer of short stories that had appeared in gift books, annuals, magazines, and then been collected in a variety of collections. Um, but And then in 1850, he had first published The Scarlet Letter, which we'll be talking about tonight, followed in quick succession by The House of the Seven Gables, and then what I, my favorite Hawthorne novel, The Blythdale Romance. In 1853, uh, he had been given a political appointment as consul in Liverpool. came just at the right time because he, he was facing a kind of writer's block. And he quickly decamped, settled in Liverpool, took up his official duties, uh, which he, I think, rather enjoyed. And it was during this time when he was in Liverpool and was thinking about, well, what should I do next? And he was discussing this problem with his publishers in Boston. And that's where this quote comes from. His publishers in Boston were very close to Hawthorne, in part because they were acting as his bankers, taking care of all kinds of financial affairs for him. Let me continue. Um, so he'd just written this letter, and he returned to these subjects, the subject of women's writing, in his very next letter to Tickner, which was written just two weeks later. But here, at least, he selects one of that scribbling mob, Fanny Fern, for praise. His original outburst had been directed specifically at the work of another, Mariah Susanna Cummins, whose best-selling novel, The Lamplighter, was making a tremendous success. Published in early March of 1854, this work is reported to have sold 20,000 copies in 20 days and 40,000 copies in eight weeks. By year's end, nearly 75,000 copies had been produced, and by the end of the decade, total sales in the United States were somewhere around 90,000 copies. Nevertheless, Hawthorne clearly exaggerated when in his exasperation he claimed that books written by women were selling by the 100,000. Although sales of the lamplighter approached that figure, its success was exceptional and its sales were not matched by other novels of the decade. The exception, of course, was Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which indeed did sell in the hundred thousands, around 310,000 copies during the 1850s. Hawthorne's frustration is understandable. Consider his most popular work, The Scarlet Letter, which was published in March 1850. Only 1,100 of 11,800 copies had been produced by 1860. For the short term, at least, sales of his works had to be reckoned in the thousands instead of tens of thousands, much less hundreds of thousands. But as we pass the sesquicentennial of the original publication of The Scarlet Letter, it pays to look at the longer term. What was the publication history of the work for the remainder of the 19th century? And how does this history compare to that of Uncle Tom's Cabin? And what can the comparison tell us about these works' subsequent histories and receptions? The story of the composition and original publication of The Scarlet Letter is well known. As I said earlier, Hawthorne was an already an established writer of short stories and sketches, and he began the work on The Scarlet Letter sometime, probably late in the summer, during 1849, the very same year that he was dismissed from his job at the Salem Customs House, 
this was another political appointment. Before, and with the change of administration, as we all understand, he had been forced out. It was only after the 1852 election, of course, that he came back in and went to Liverpool. Before year's end of 1849, that is, the Boston publisher James T. Fields, the junior partner of Tickner, called on Hawthorne in Salem and came away with a draft of the Scarlet Letter, which Hawthorne imagined at that time as one of several stories to be included in a collection that tentatively he called Old Time Legends, or perhaps the Custom House. The evidence is a little bit unclear. Fields encouraged Hawthorne to consider expanding the work for separate publication as a short novel, and Hawthorne eventually agreed. On the 15th of January, Hawthorne, 1850, Hawthorne sent the revised manuscript to Fields, including the introductory Custom House sketch, but missing three chapters. And there's a little bit of uh, disagreement about which three chapters those were. Many people think they're the last three chapters, but that's probably not true. But the final three chapters were sent on to Boston by the 3rd of February. In the meanwhile, Fields had gone ahead with production, putting typesetters to work, and by the 18th of February, he was able to include the sheets, quote, as far as printed, in a parcel sent to the London publisher, Richard Bentley. On the 16th of March, the first edition of 2,500 copies appeared at a retail price of 75 cents bound in the very characteristic Tickner and Fields binding of brown ribbed tea cloth. And I have here a, an example of that. This is not the Scarlet Letter. This is Longfellow's Evangeline. But the binding, from where you're sitting, I could tell you it's the Scarlet Letter, and you couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> a very characteristic Tickner and Fields binding, and the binding that I could tell you it was Walden, or I could tell you that it was Emerson's Essays. How would you know? Uh, as Fields had hoped, but to Hawthorne's apparent surprise, the work was both well-received and a moderate success. A second edition of 2,500 copies was issued on the 22nd of April, containing a new preface by Hawthorne dated March 30, 1850, and a third edition of 1,000 copies for the first time printed from stereotype plates followed in September. By year's end, Hawthorne had earned $663.75 in royalties. His royalty was reckoned at 15% of the retail price, while the publisher's profits came to roughly $900, even after paying the cost of the stereotype plates. These results were in part due to Fields' talents as a publisher, for he was skilled at managing the publicity of announcements, advertisements, and a network of sympathetic reviewers to push his firm's publications. In one regard, though, Fields fell short, for in rushing the work into publication, he failed to allow time for arrangements for an authorized English edition. British copyright law required that such an edition appear before or simultaneously with the American edition. But by the time that Bentley, the London publisher that Fields had approached, received the entire text, it had already been published in Boston. Bentley reported that two other firms were in the process of preparing unauthorized editions and therefore declined to publish the work. In the event, it was not reprinted in England until May of 1851, the following year, 
though imported copies of the American sheets had been available there before then. The wish to rush the work into publication may also explain in part why the firm printed the first two editions from type instead of stereotype plates, though this is not as surprising as it may first appear. Although only a few years later, the firm's standard practice became to print most of its new publications from plates, in 1850, only four of its 18 new works were stereotyped for the first printing. The reason may have been financial, as the firm was in the process of expanding its list and may have wished to avoid the extra investment that plates entailed. The cost of producing stereotyped plates was nearly double the cost of composition. In the case of the Scarlet Letter, composition for the first two editions came to $130 and $122, respectively, whereas the cost of composition and stereotyping for the third was $233. Clearly, it would have been more economical to have produced the plates immediately, though the firm may not have expected the work to have the success that it had. Despite these oversights, Hawthorne was surely pleased with Fields' handling of the work's publication, for over the next several years, the firm of Tickner and Fields was to reissue most of Hawthorne's earlier works and to publish his new works as they were finished. I've already mentioned House of the Seven Gables, Blythedale Romance. Hawthorne himself was to form close personal ties with both partners, and Tickner and Fields and its successor firms remained Hawthorne's primary publishers for the rest of the century. Thus, Hawthorne's works formed a key part of the core list of canonical American literary works, including those of Emerson and Thoreau, that modern scholars have come to associate with Houghton Mifflin and Company, the firm that Tickner and Fields eventually evolved into. Harriet Beecher Stowe, on the other hand, was less fortunate in her original choice of publisher for Uncle Tom's Cabin, Boston's John Punchard Jewett. Despite the work's tremendous initial success, and despite the skillful promotional efforts of its publisher, demand for Uncle Tom's Cabin fell off markedly after little over, a little over a year. Shortly thereafter, Stowe fell out with Jewett over contract terms, and for future work she turned to a second, for a second time to another Boston publisher, Philip Sampson and Company, a firm that had originally declined to publish her anti-slavery masterpiece. After the break with Stowe, Jewett remained the publisher of Uncle Tom's Cabin, but it cannot have brought him much profit. He nearly failed during the Panic of 1857 and finally dissolved his publishing business in 1860. In 1859, Stowe's new chief publishers, Philip Sampson and Company, also went out of business. And in consequence, she approached Fields to act as her publisher. In fact, she had been touring Europe in 1859, and in what must have been one of the most fascinating transatlantic crossings of all time, James T. Fields, Harriet Beecher Stowe and her family, and Nathaniel Hawthorne took the same packet steamer from Liverpool to Boston. And who knows what conversations took place on that, but one result certainly was that Fields became Stowe's publisher. Uh, it was in this way uh, that she joined 
that list. And when Stowe's works joined those of Hawthorne on the list of Tickner and Fields in 1860, Uncle Tom's Cabin had been, for all extents and purposes, out of print for nearly eight years. No new printing seemed to have appeared between 1853 and actually the first Tickner and Fields printing, which was 1863. So you have a 10-year hiatus. In the meanwhile, Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter had remained happily in print with steady sales, which declined only slightly as time passed. The investment in stereotype plates for the third edition of September 1850 allowed the firm to produce small impressions over time as demand required. A second printing from these plates, the fourth printing of the work overall, 800 copies this time, was produced in June of 1851. And between then and Hawthorne's death in 1864, the plates were used for 13 impressions of 500 copies each a total of 6,500 copies at an average of one impression per year. Very nice, steady sales. Hawthorne's death occurred on the 19th of May, 1864, a little over a month after that of William D. Tickner, the senior partner of Tickner and Fields, which had occurred on 10th of April, 1864, while the two, Hawthorne and Tickner, were on va a vacation trip to the south it was hoped to revive Hawthorne's failing health. Hawthorne had actually in 1860 published his final novel, The Marble Fawn, or Transformation, as it was called in England, and then had come back to Boston and, lo and behold, found himself facing writer's block again, and clearly some sort of form of what I suspect we would call today depression. Tickner and Fields were quite alarmed at this state of affairs, and they had arranged that Tickner would accompany, and I've always felt, despite the sort of common belief, that Tickner may well have been a closer friend to Hawthorne than Fields. I, I think Fields chattered too much for Hawthorne, whereas I think Tickner and Hawthorne like to just sit there and not say much. Anyway, the firm arranged that Tickner would accompany Hawthorne on a trip to the south. You've all, if, and many of you may have survived a Boston or New England winter and know that uh, early spring is a good time to think about heading south. And they'd gotten as far as Philadelphia when Tickner came down with a cold of some sort. And you can imagine how this cheered Hawthorne to find that he was in a hotel in Philadelphia with his traveling companion dying, and eventually he died. Anyway, Hawthorne himself died a few months later. Uh, inevitably, these deaths had an effect on the publication of Hawthorne's works, including The Scarlet Letter. Hawthorne's business relations with Tickner and Fields had been complicated, based on a series of verbal agreements that stipulated that the royalties on his works were set at varying terms at 10% of the retail price for some, 15 for others. Once the firm was reorganized after Tickner's death, with Fields firmly in charge as senior partner, he arranged to regularize matters, and it was agreed that the firm would in future pay a flat sum of 12 cents for each copy sold of any of Hawthorne's works. The fairness of this new arrangement is difficult to assess, 
At the time, it certainly seemed generous, for 12 cents a copy represented an increase in royalty on the Scarlet Letter, from 11 and a quarter cents to 12 cents. Similarly, it meant an increase in royalty for all of Hawthorne's other works, save two, The House of the Seven Gable and Our Old Home, that were earning 15 cents per copy under the old agreement. The problem, however, arises from the shift in the method of determining royalties from a percentage basis to a flat fee. Retail prices for books had remained remarkably stable during the 1840s and 50s, but the Civil War brought about a period of inflation and a consequent increase in book production costs, which in turn inevitably led to an increase in retail prices, a result that Fields must have foreseen. By the late 1860s, retail prices on all of Hawthorne's works had risen to $1.50 or $2, which meant that the royalty on the Scarlet Letter, for example, would have risen under the old agreement from 12 to 22 and a half cents a copy. From this perspective, Fields had struck a very hard bargain indeed. Conflict was inevitable. Hawthorne's widow, Sophia, raising three children alone, found herself strapped financially and sensed that perhaps Hawthorne's royalties were less than they should have been. Her suspicion seemed confirmed in 1868 when Gail Hamilton, another Tickner and Fields author whose royalty terms had been changed in 1864 in a manner similar to Hawthorne's, began to raise questions, and in public. Very embarrassing. Upset, Sophia Hawthorne even went so far as to threaten to transfer future rights in her husband's works to another firm. Fields reacted quickly. He prepared an explanation backed by figures and offered to submit the matter to arbitration. Eventually, Sophia Hawthorne's sister, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Peabody, intervened. After examining the firm's accounts, she came to the conclusion that, despite several clerical errors and other carelessness, the firm's records were consistent internally. But she also noted that demand had been such that neither author nor firm had received as much as $1,000 per year on average in income from all of Hawthorne's books. Tickner and Fields was technically vindicated, but relations were soured. In an attempt to placate Sophia Hawthorne, Fields offered to pay in future a royalty of 10% on all of Hawthorne's works. Remember that the originally the Scarlet Letter had a royalty rate of 15%, but this was a blanket, just 10% on everything. These terms were agreed to and remained in force until 1875, when Hawthorne's heirs accepted the firm's offer of a regular annuity of $2,000 in lieu of royalties. Hawthorne's death in 1864 marks another important shift in the publication of The Scarlet Letter. For in the fall of that year, the firm issued the first collected edition of Hawthorne's works. The Scarlet Letter, printed from the original 1850 plates, appeared as volume six of 14 in this so-called tinted edition. A second collected edition was issued in 1871, and the very same plates were used for the Scarlet Letter, which appeared bound with the Blythdale Romance as volume four in a 12-volume illustrated library edition. This trend continued, for when new plates for the Scarlet Letter were finally cast in 1875, 
25 years after the original plates had been cast. They were for use in the 23-volume Little Classic edition of Hawthorne's collected works. A third set of plates cast in 1883 was prepared for the Riverside edition, where the Scarlet Letter appeared, again bound with the Blythdale Romance, as volume 5 of 12. These sets of Hawthorne's collected works were expanded as posthumous works appeared, and over the years were repackaged and reissued in a variety of formats and bindings at a range of prices. But for the rest of the century, the Scarlet Letter was generally speaking marketed as part of Hawthorne's collected works, and not singly as Hawthorne's greatest masterpiece. If Hawthorne and Stowe shared the same publisher from 1860, the pattern of publication of their works was quite different. Uncle Tom's Cabin clearly stood out among Stowe's works, not just in terms of importance, but also income. By the end of the 1880s, her earnings from Uncle Tom's Cabin equaled nearly two and a half times the combined royalty on all her other books. Unlike The Scarlet Letter, which was chiefly available as part of a set of Hawthorne's collected work since his death in 1864, Uncle Tom's Cabin was chiefly sold separately by itself. Stowe, who survived Hawthorne by over 30 years, continued to produce new works through the 1870s, and there was no collected edition of Stowe's work until after her death in 1896. And what of the sales of the two works? The Scarlet Letter started out at considerable disadvantage. Remember, during the 1850s, that we had something like 1,200 copies versus 310,000 copies. 12,000 12, copies versus 310,000. Uh, but as time passed and sales increased, the difference grew less striking. During the 1860s, roughly 6,500 copies of The Scarlet Letter were produced and 8,000 copies of Uncle Tom's Cabin. During the 1870s, roughly 20,000 compared to 26,000 copies of Uncle Tom's Cabin. In 1878, with the formation of a new business partnership, the stereotype plates of the two works were inventoried and valued a figure that served as a guide to estimating the worth of the rights to their publication. The plates of the Scarlet Letter were valued at $4,792, those for Uncle Tom's Cabin at $4,524. Although the Scarlet Letter was chiefly marketed as part of Hawthorne's collected works, it was also issued from time to time in separate editions. In late 1877, as the, at the end of the original copyright term of 28 years, James R. Osgood, a successor firm to Tickner and Fields, issued the first new separate edition of The Scarlet Letter. With rather lavish illustrations by Mary Halleck Foote, this was an expensive volume at $4 in cloth and $9 in leather. The illustrations may have been intended to support the firm's claim in the work, though the copyright in the text could be and was renewed and protected for a for further 14 years. In 1879, Houghton Osgood and Company, another successor firm, issued for $10 FOC Darley's Compositions in Outline for Hawthorne Scarlet Letter, 
a series of 12 illustrated prints, each accompanied by a page of text extracted from Hawthorne's work. During the 1880s, both Hawthorne's works and Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin continued as steady sellers, though developments in the book trade were troubling. Throughout the decade, the market for books was bedeviled by pirates and undersellers, an emerging group of publishers and booksellers who took advantage of the lack of international copyright on British works and the increasing use of trade sales as a means of dumping surplus or out-of-date stock to flood the market with cheap books. As an established trade publisher, Houghton Mifflin and Company, the final inheritor of the publication rights to the works of both authors, was well aware of the losses caused by these practices. The threat was exacerbated by the fact that early in the 1890s, the copyrights on both The Scarlet Letter and Uncle Tom's Cabin were due to expire, and these works were destined to enter the public domain. Actually, as a curious footnote, the firm seems to have been very a little bit confused at the exact date that the copyright was to expire on both works, and they often were working under assumptions that proved to be false, but that's a slightly different story. During the fall of 1891, the editors at Houghton Mifflin discussed strategies for the continued publications of both works while they planned new and cheap editions that they hoped would maintain their control over the market. The main issue under discussion was the timing for issue for these new editions. But things came to a head in the spring of 1892 when the firm learned that new plates of both works were already being prepared for sale to publishers of cheap publications. Legal advice was sought, and although the copyright technicalities were obscure, the firm put up a bold front and succeeded in driving off the competition, but only for the time being. By early 1892, Houghton Mifflin had prepared and issued new and cheap separate editions of both The Scarlet Letter and Uncle Tom's Cabin, for the most part printed from plates that were already in use. In its spring announcement of March, the firm listed two new separate editions of The Scarlet Letter, the quote-unquote universal edition, printed from plates of the Riverside edition that had first come out in 1871, which cost 50 cents in cloth and 25 cents in paper, and an even cheaper Salem edition, which was 30 cents in cloth and 15 cents in paper. These were followed in May by an expensive edition illustrated with photogravures based on Darley's outline drawings. The trade edition cost $2.50, but it was also issued in a special large paper edition limited to 200 numbered copies and bound in vellum at $7.50. These joined the popular edition of The Scarlet Letter, the only other separate edition that had been issued, which had been in print since 1885 and priced at $1 in cloth, 50 cents in paper. When the work entered the public domain in November, the firm thought it was November 1892, though in fact it would have been the year before. They in fact got an extra year by being, basically by having a bold front and pretending it was still in copyright. Its authorized publisher, Houghton Mifflin and Company, made sure it was available separately in a range of formats and prices 
from 15 cents to $7.50 that appealed to as broad a market as possible. The copyright on Uncle Tom's Cabin expired in May of 1893. As with the Scarlet Letter, the firm had already issued a range of new editions, both cheap and expensive, in an attempt to maintain their hold over the market. After both works entered the public domain, however, they were both quickly reprinted in unauthorized edition. By century's end, separate editions of the Scarlet Letter were available from a veritable catalog of the firms that specialized in cheap publishing. Altimus, Bayview, Burt, Caldwell, Coates, Kroll, Donahue, Hill, Hurst, Lupton, McKay, Mershon, Ogilvy, Page, Rand, Stokes, Trustlove, Warner, Ziegler, and there are probably more. A list that very closely matches the list of publishers that had reissued Uncle Tom's Cabin. Houghton Mifflin continued as an important publisher of both works. In fact, it continues to publish The Scarlet Letter. This talk is actually, or a version of this talk, is going to appear in a textbook edition of The Scarlet Letter that comes out with some, I don't know, scholarly uh, appendices that Houghton Mifflin is hoping to get out next spring. I hope you all use it in your classes, though I will not get any royalties. Uh, but after 1892, when it entered the public domain, it was no longer to control the ways that either The Scarlet Letter or Uncle Tom's Cabin were packaged and marketed. For much of the 20th century, critical opinion of the two works followed different paths. Uncle Tom's Cabin came to be viewed as flawed, overly sentimental, and frankly, racist. In fact, an embarrassment, an assessment that has only recently been revised. Indeed, a literary critic and Pulitzer Prize novelist several years ago suggested that Uncle Tom's Cabin was a far better novel than Huckleberry Finn. I agree. Uh, in the meanwhile, however, The Scarlet Letter emerged along with Melville's Moby Dick as one of the, and I quote, two most nearly undisputed classics of American fiction. Clearly, reception history cannot be explained only by a work's publication and marketing, but it's interesting to speculate on the extent they have influenced the critical understanding of the importance of the Scarlet Letter in Hawthorne's oeuvre for as the 20th century dawned, it was, for the first time, readily and widely available to readers, not as one volume from Hawthorne's collected works, but as a distinct and separate work. Thank you. I just wish to add that in high school I read The Scarlet Letter in a Houghton Mifflin edition and we thought it was pretty hot stuff. 
I hope you'll join this speaker for a reception in the first floor Alderman Library staff lounge immediately.